It's long been said that children are our most valuable resource, that children are our future, and today's children are tomorrow's leaders. Children are also among our most vulnerable populations. North Carolina children are found to be victims of neglect, be it physical, sexual, or in the cyber world. But the good news is there is a plethora of agencies and dedicated people working diligently to make that number a downward trend on a daily basis and to provide resources for child victims. One of those people is our guest for today's podcast, as April is designated Child Advocacy Month. Whitney Bellick is the child abuse resource prosecutor with the North Carolina Conference of District Attorneys. In that capacity, she serves as a resource to assist prosecutors across North Carolina by providing training in the prosecution of cases involving abuses of children. She serves as a resource to law enforcement, social services, and other allied professionals. Whitney, first of all, thank you for taking time to be with us to discuss this very, very important topic with our listeners, particularly those who are in law enforcement. We know that it's so important that it is part of mandatory training for all sworn officers in North Carolina this year. So again, I just want to thank you for taking time to share with us. I want to jump right into today's topic. As an attorney who is consulting and working with law enforcement and working with district attorneys and assistant district attorneys throughout the state. Let's start by talking about some of the relevant laws pertaining to child abuse. And then if you could maybe even talk about some of the tools that are available to law enforcement. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me. There's a lot of laws we have in North Carolina, and frankly, they've really changed a lot over the years. So it's important that we all stay up to date on what the newest law is because the laws both in child physical abuse and child sexual abuse can really take a lot of deep dives to really get. Uh, It involves sometimes it involves math, which uh, I personally am not a fan of. But uh, it's really difficult sometimes for us to dig deep into those and get them. So staying up to date is really important. You know, and when I say that it involves math, like when we get into child sexual abuse laws here in North Carolina, a lot of things are important. It's important what age the victim was when the abuse happened. It's important what age the defendant was when the abuse happened. It's also important what their relationship is. For example, people who are serving in the role of a teacher or some sort of school staff, they have certain crimes that apply to them if they have sexual relationships with a student that don't, may not apply to people out in the world. For example, currently the way that our laws are written, if a person is 16 or 17, then technically, with a few exceptions, you know, that's what we consider kind of the age of consent. And most of our sexual abuse laws with children stop uh, applying when someone is 16 or over. But if the defendant, if the person that they're having sex with is a teacher, if that person is serving as a substitute parent, like a step parent or someone who regularly cares for them in their home, uh, then it doesn't matter if the person is 16 or 17. If they are in that role, that is an illegal relationship. And so there have been times when I have prosecuted 
40-year-old teachers for having sex with a 19-year-old student who is still in high school where they were teachers. And that's still illegal because of that relationship. You know, what we're targeting with these laws is really the power dynamic that may happen. And sometimes that happens because of the age. And sometimes that happens because of what role that adult plays in that child's life. Those sorts of things can really, there are a lot of nuances there, and it can be really confusing to understand. And so that's why, again, getting involved with training classes, getting involved with the resources that are out there are really important. And the same thing goes for physical abuse crimes. You know, in those crimes, it is often uh, a matter of how severe is the injury. Uh, and that makes a big difference in what kind of crime is charged. And so knowing what, you know, we have a lot of laws out there in North Carolina that if the injury is seen on a two-year-old, it might be considered more serious than if that same injury was seen on an adult. Because the courts have recognized, hey, you know, this child is very small. The perpetrator is very large. And also injuries on a child can be much more severe because of the size of the child and and the way that their bodies are at the current time when the injury happens. So, for example, we have case law that says that a bruise on a child's head that occurred when they were hit with a belt with by their parent, that that's actually a serious physical injury, whereas that kind of injury on an adult wouldn't qualify for that in a typical uh, assault case. And so those kinds of things become very important, again, knowing the law, knowing what's appropriate charge, knowing you know what kind of things we need from the investigator to prove the case. So all that's really important when it comes to the law of child abuse. And then we also have laws about child exploitation, uh, what used to be called child pornography. We now refer to it as child sexual abuse material. Those laws are also very nuanced. And so they apply to people who are under the age of 18 the way that a, a person's body is shown in those pictures uh, may be important, that kind of stuff. And so, again, it's all very nuanced, no matter what kind of child abuse law you're looking to apply. And so it's really important that officers keep up to date on that in any way that they can. And suffice to say, as an investigation of this nature begins and, and as it starts to unfold, and a lot of times it does grow tentacles and, and goes out in different directions, is it probably wise for law enforcement uh, from an investigative standpoint to get in touch with someone in their district attorney's office early on to kind of see which direction these things are going? I think that's really important. I think it, it may be that an officer, like if they work, let's say, in a special victims unit and they regularly see these cases, they may not need as much of a consultation with the district attorney's office, but especially for a lot of officers don't have the kinds of resources at their departments or just are not in that position to specialize in these cases. And they may not see them frequently. And so I think that is an especially important time to reach out to the prosecutor's office, you know, have some time with them, tell them the facts so that they have a chance to really dig into that law, because I think it's very difficult to expect officers that are kind of dealing with all sorts of crimes and just kind of keeping their head above water as far as the calls that they're out on and the cases that they're dealing with, to expect them to know every single nuance of all of these laws. So that's the prosecutor's job, and it can be really important for them to discuss with the law enforcement before they make a charge and talk about, you know, maybe what more evidence they may need in order to make a case or just generally what kind of case needs to be uh, taken out, what kind of charge needs to be taken out, what's the appropriate charge in that situation. Sure. So 
in a general realm, a district attorney or one of his or her assistants could certainly be viewed as a law enforcement tool, something that a law enforcement investigator can reach into his or her toolbox and pull out. What are some of the other tools that are available to law enforcement when investigating child abuse cases? It's really important to to have those and know about those other tools because probably I'm not telling anything to a law enforcement officer that they don't know, but prosecutors are really busy and they're a lot of times in court. That makes it hard to constantly consult with them. I think it would be ideal if they could, but that's just not a reality. And so, yeah, it's really important to have other kinds of resources and things that an officer can reference. So one of the things, like I mentioned before, is to go to trainings that are specific to child abuse. They have them at CACs. We have them at the Conference of Disc Attorneys. They have them in various other places. And so that can be one way to help. And so when you go to one of these child abuse trainings, you'll get materials, you'll get PowerPoints and handouts and that sort of thing. And a lot of times these laws will be broken down in those materials. And that can be really important to have. Another resource is the child abuse listserv that we have here in North Carolina. That's one that uh, law enforcement can join. There's prosecutors on there. There's social workers. There's doctors. There's nurses. All sorts of different professions that deal with child maltreatment. And we discuss things like this is the newest case law or this is a change in the statute that's happened in the child abuse world or, you know, this is what I'm seeing. And also talk about any kind of upcoming trainings. There's also a lot of virtual trainings that I forgot to mention. You know, it's not just about sometimes we have officers that say, like, I just can't take a day or two or three to go to a training. We understand that. But luckily, we've had this kind of virtual resurgence or or coming about where we have these options for officers to take those trainings virtually. And then the last thing is that there are resource guides. So in the district attorney's office, they will have several reference manuals that we at the conference of district attorneys put out for them. There's a child sexual abuse charging guide. That's a really useful one because it breaks down every single statute uh, that deals with child sexual abuse and talks about all sorts of things that, that, law enforcement and prosecutors need to know and explains what different terms mean within those laws. And so that's a really great tool that you might be able to use at your local district attorney's office. And also, if a law enforcement agency wants to have one, that's something that we at the conference of attorneys can work on getting. Um, you know, it's not something that we generally produce for every law enforcement agency in the state because that's a lot. But it's something that we have certainly given to law enforcement in the past. That uh, that guide's actually being updated right now. There's also a child sexual abuse resource manual. That's really more for prosecutors just because it goes really deep into the trial law of trying those cases. We have a child physical abuse manual that's the same thing. There's also a child abuse um, reference guide for law enforcement that law enforcement will actually be getting with their in-service this year that just kind of breaks down some really basic things about child abuse law just as kind of a quick reference. So there are quite a few references out there. You can also subscribe to the many blogs at the School of Government. They will sometimes talk about different nuances in child abuse law, although that's kind of runs the gamut. It's not just child abuse related. So there are a lot of resources out there and a lot of folks at your local CAC especially that are more than willing to help law enforcement get what they need, answer questions, work with them when it comes to that. And so it's really just about reaching out to the folks that are out there. And there are quite a few. I mean, I mentioned the CACs. We at the Conference of District Attorneys. 
There are a lot of agencies and groups out there that are more than happy to help on both a local and a national level that if law enforcement really is struggling, are absolutely there to help. And I'm the child abuse resource prosecutor, and that's exactly what I'm here for. So if your local prosecutor is not available because they're in court all the time, then law enforcement can call me. And I regularly answer questions from law enforcement about you know, just some general uh, issues that they or questions they may have about child abuse law. So there are lots of resources out there. Well, so far in our conversation, you've used a word nuance uh, on two or three occasions. And I want to borrow that word to ask about some of the nuances involved in working with victims of child abuse and sexual abuse. So there are a lot of nuances. Again, it is a, a common word just because Working with children is difficult, and it's difficult for a variety of reasons. And honestly, working with children, kind of excluding trauma and um, very bad situations that may have happened to them is difficult because they have different needs, they have different understandings, different levels of development. All kinds of things play into working with children. And, And so when we're dealing with a child that's been a victim or we're dealing with a child as a witness to something traumatic or extremely difficult, then we do have to look into those nuances and we have to change a little bit about what we might normally do in a case on the scene or, you know, later on as we're investigating because the victim is a child. We know now through lots of scientific uh, research and information out there, medical information out there, that children's brains are different than adults. And so we cannot expect them to process information or express information the same way that an adult does, because their brain literally cannot do that. It's incapable of doing that. But that doesn't mean that just because they don't think or express themselves exactly like an adult would doesn't mean that we can't have conversations with them, get information from them while still helping them and being um, a safe space for them. And I think that's a really important thing for law enforcement to remember is that It might not be something that we're so concerned about when we're looking into a DWI or we're looking into a robbery because the people we're dealing with, for the most part, will be adults. And, you know, they the victims may have their own resources available or have already figured out coping mechanisms. But when we're dealing with children, a lot of times they don't have that. And a lot of times, unfortunately, we're talking about child abuse. A lot of times the person that's been abusing them is supposed to be their safe space, but they're not. Their parent, their caregiver, uh, somebody like that. And so these children are especially vulnerable because the one person who's supposed to keep them safe, who's supposed to comfort them and protect them, has not been that for them. And so it's all the more important that we as the people who deal with them as victims, become their safe space. And we cannot be social workers. We are not therapists. We're not trying to be. But it is extremely important that we make sure that they know that we're listening to them. Maybe that doesn't mean taking out charges. Maybe that doesn't mean um, taking them into custody or getting them even away from the possible perpetrator. Sometimes that's just not possible as much as we may want to do it. But no matter what situation they're in or what has gone on with them, it's important that they know that that law enforcement and the criminal justice system and the child welfare system are safe spaces for them to come to if they need help. And so I think that that's an important part, too, of working with children as victims and children as witnesses, is that we have an added responsibility to make sure that they know that 
coming to us and working with us is a safe thing and is a thing that's okay for them to do. Well, I'd like to take this piece of the conversation and our discussion just another step forward. My experience as a parent and grandparent is that talking to kids can be difficult under normal circumstances. But when we're talking to abuse victims as law enforcement investigators, suffice to say that there have to be some different conversational techniques employed. Can you talk a little bit about some of those? Absolutely. And you're right. There's whole weeks-long classes on exactly how to talk to kids differently than we talk to adults. And so in addition to being a safe space for them to talk, it's also extremely important to know how to talk to them. And it is vastly different. And just like you mentioned, many of us have had those experiences with our own children in our lives to know that the way that I ask a question or the way that I try to get information out of my six-year-old is not the way that I would generally try to do that uh, when I'm trying to have a conversation with an adult. And so it is extremely difficult and it is something that takes some thought. It can't just be done by rote or the way that we do in other situations. So some of the things that officers should know about speaking with children is that, first of all, it's not something that you're going to be able to do um, fully and completely right off the bat. It's very going to be very difficult if you're a patrol officer that's responding to the scene to sit a child down and have a full and complete interview with them there on the scene. And one of the most important things that officers can do if they're in that situation is reach out to people who do have the training and the facilities to do that appropriately. So in North Carolina and in, in every state that I'm aware of, we have something called forensic interviewing of children. And that is a very specialized uh, bit of training that people can go through, law enforcement, social workers, medical professionals, prosecutors. They can go through this and it, it's, a, it's a long course and it goes through uh, exactly how to speak to children and talk to them in, in an interview setting in a way that will make sure that it's done appropriately and effectively. So there's been tons of study into how to talk to kids in a way that is comfortable for them, encourages them to tell a full narrative about what happened to them, but does it in a way that we're in no way making suggestions about what they could, should say. And that's one of the most important things that officers can try to avoid just on the scene until they can get the child to a specialized forensic interviewer. Uh, often those forensic interviewers are housed at the CAC or at a medical facility, but there may be them housed elsewhere. So it's important to know who they are. Uh, and oftentimes those kinds of interviews are initiated by DSS, by child welfare, and not by law enforcement, but they can be initiated. So it's important to know who they are. But the other important thing is until they can get there, you may have to speak to the child on the scene. I mean, oftentimes that's really not a, a choice. And so law enforcement can have a few things in their back pocket that until they get the child to the specialized forensic interviewer, that they can do or not do when they're speaking to that child on the scene. So one of the first things is not to expect the child to give you this full linear narrative about what happened to them in an instant, in, a, in that kind of environment where you're responding on the scene, it's going to be extremely traumatic. And that's difficult for anybody to talk um, through a full story about what happened, but it's almost impossible for a child to do. And so one of the things that law enforcement that's responding out to a scene that involves a child should do is probably lower their expectations about what they're going to be able to get out of the child there on the scene. 
sometimes, you know, they're going to have to ask questions because they need to make an assessment and they need to figure out what's going on. And so it's not, again, avoidable, but also expecting a child to give this full narrative that makes a lot of sense. That's really difficult for a child to do, period, especially a younger child, but especially in a traumatic situation. The other thing is one of the things that we talk about a lot There's a class called First Call, which I definitely recommend for law enforcement who may be first responders in a situation where there are children involved. It's run by the same people who run the forensic interviewing classes that we offer here in North Carolina. It's called Radar. But the class is called First Call, and it's just about exactly that. Not about how to sit down with a child and do a full forensic interview but just how to talk to a child in a first responder situation. And so one of the things that officers learn in that class is about asking open-ended questions. We really want to avoid putting any presupposition in our question to a child. So, you know, that's, that's questions like, can you tell me what happened instead of your dad hit you, didn't he? Those kinds of situations, those kinds of questions can be very problematic when they pre-assume some information. We may think that that's a way for us to make sure that the child knows what we want to talk about or narrow down the focus so the child can really give us some information that we need. But what happens is with questions like that, later on, it can be really problematic for moving forward with the case because that could put ideas in the child's head about what they're supposed to say. So when we're trying to interview them later, that may be confusing for them. It also opens up a door for the defense if this case goes to trial, to say, well, it wasn't the child's idea to say that dad hit him. The officer put those words in their mouth. And that kind of goes back to a, a history that we had in the 70s and 80s of some improper interviewing techniques that were used with children before we had forensic interviewing of children, where that's exactly what happened, that basically the, the interviewers asked the child over and over and over again And kind of led them to say, like, well, if you say this thing I'm looking for, then you can get out of here. And the children are smart and they realize that. And so they just said what the interviewer wanted them to say. And we don't want to do that. So asking open-ended questions, not pushing for a particular answer, being very careful and thoughtful about the way we phrase questions to children, that kind of stuff can be really important. We want to make sure that when we're talking to them, they're also in a safe space. So That means if we can possibly interview them away from the potential perpetrator, who often is a parent, you know, that is a good situation. Um, I'm not saying necessarily they have to be in a totally separate room. Uh, You know, that will come later, hopefully during the forensic interview. But making sure that they feel like they are safe, just if the officer is in between the child and their parent, making sure that the parent's not motioning or, you know, mouthing things to them. Things like that that may seem really obvious, but we have to be especially cognizant when we're talking to children on a scene like that. Well, those who are listening that are part of the sworn law enforcement community are very familiar with the 24 hours of in-service training that they have to take every year. What they may not know is that parts of that training are mandated by administrative code, and every year certain topics are going to be part of in-service. One of those is juvenile minority sensitivity training. It is a required training every year, and this year, child abuse and dealing with it is part of the JMST block. That didn't come easy, I'm sure, so I'm guessing that that's part of in-service this year because it was more than likely data-driven or 
its importance has certainly made itself more aware in the state of North Carolina. Yeah, you're right. It it came about because we had a lot of data that was concerning. So in North Carolina, we have the Child Fatality Task Force, and every year they look at a lot of different data from a lot of different sources to try to figure out why children are dying and what sorts of things we can do to try to limit and reduce the amount of child death that we have here in North Carolina. One of the things that was clear from a lot of data over the course of the last several years, this is not exactly new, but one of the things that they recognized is that we have to get reports out there about child abuse in order to even begin the process of helping kids and keeping them from being hurt and dying. And so that means reporting. The three most prevalent reporters of child abuse are law enforcement, medical professionals, and teachers. And so one of the things that the Child Fatality Task Force targeted with its goals for the past year was to improve and and create more extensive training for those three professions specifically about what child abuse is, what are red flags of child abuse, how to speak to children that may have been abused, and to make sure that that training was getting out there. And so we do a lot of training, as I mentioned previously, we do a lot of training with law enforcement. But what I've noticed and what I mentioned to the task force when we were in these discussions was I see the same detectives over and over again. They're SVU detectives. They're, they're detectives that focus on these cases. And that's kind of like preaching to the choir as far as red flags for abuse and talking to children because they've already been trained in that. Uh, and not that they don't need training, but we're not getting this to the masses. We're not getting this to the patrol officers who are going out to the scene And a lot of times the patrol officers may not be responding to a call about child abuse specifically. They're out there responding to a call about drug use at a house or a noise complaint or a car crash. But they may be interacting with a child that's being abused or neglected and not even know it. And therefore, if therefore, if they don't know it, we do not have the opportunity to get that report and start the process of looking into it. And so we wanted to get that information out there. We took it to the in-service folks. They agreed to give us two hours of the four-hour block in JMST for 2023. And we, myself and uh, DSS and other professionals around the state, took that, put in the most basic information that we could think of that we really wanted every officer, every sworn officer in the state to know about child abuse in the hopes that they would take this and next time they were at a scene, Maybe they would feel more confident about speaking to the child and getting information, or maybe they would recognize a sign of abuse that they wouldn't have otherwise recognized. We also have information in there about working with DSS because we recognize that sometimes that's not an easy task. Agencies working with other agencies that have different goals and different directives can sometimes cause issues, but kids are more in danger when those agencies are not working effectively together. Kids are less safe when DSS and law enforcement and other agencies that work on these cases are not communicating effectively or working the way that they should. And so we wanted to at least get information out there about what DSS does, what they can and cannot do according to the law, how their screening process works, so that if some of that ill will or miscommunication was the result of just misunderstanding, then we at least had that information out there because, again, it really does help to have everybody working together. So 
I'm hopeful that, that this information, as it starts getting out there and law enforcement starts getting it, and we did make that handheld one-page law enforcement reference guide for child abuse, that it will help at least a few kids be a little bit safer because we have some information about exactly what we need to be doing because these cases are really complicated and law enforcement needs resources to handle them as, as well as possible and to answer their questions and also to know who to reach out to. And so that's another thing that that guide has or that the section and in-service contains is exactly that. It has information about who do you reach out to if you need this resource or if you have this problem, because sometimes that's half the battle is not knowing how to do it yourself, but knowing who to call, who does know how to do that or specializes in that particular thing. Well, Whitney, what a valuable conversation this has been, and you are certainly a valuable resource throughout the state of North Carolina. Thank you for both. I'm happy to be here, and thanks for having me. As indicated at the beginning of this episode, children are our most valuable and vulnerable resource. April is Child Advocacy Month, and the North Carolina Justice Academy is dedicated to joining the many agencies across our state working on behalf of those who, not by their own choices, become victims of neglect, physical, sexual, or cyber abuse. Our guest for this episode is Whitney Bellick, the Child Abuse Resource Prosecutor with the North Carolina Conference of District Attorneys. Please join us again for our next episode. And until then, please stay safe. This is at Glover's, subject to 1074, electronic, I'm a viewer. NCJA 1014.